A number of years ago, a movie entitled Saving Private Ryan came out. It was based on a true story from World War II where Captain, I believe his name was John Miller, played by Tom Hanks, so you know it was a good position, right? Led a small band of soldiers behind enemy lines to find and to rescue Private James Ryan. Private James Ryan's mother had lost three other sons in the war, and it was given orders for them to bring him out and take him home so he could be protected. And the storyline of the movie follows them as they move into enemy territory and behind enemy lines just to save one soldier. Seems like such a small mission, but along the journey, each of the soldiers in this small band encounters some very significant personal challenges, some of their own fears and insecurities about their life and the things that they most hate and most love come to very clear focus. Mission has a way of bringing into focus the things of our life that matter most to us. And of course, as the story records, they found Private Ryan and they were able to bring him out safely. You know, stories like that really speak to our hearts, don't they? They, they kind of tug at our souls in some ways. They're so, they're, they're so rich with, uh, with commitment and sacrifice and, and, and really love for the mission and just a dedication to the things that they have been commissioned to go and accomplish and I want to talk to you this morning about a story of full devotion. And I want to share with you this morning a story that I believe, well, for me personally, and I know for many others, has very deeply spoken to our hearts and tugged literally at our souls in many ways. And in this story, I want you to walk away with this. And I want you to hear this clearly today. And hopefully I'll remember to repeat it several times for the, uh, throughout the morning. But I want you to see that God loves us with a full devotion that compels our lives to live sent for his glory. God loves us with a full devotion that compels our lives to live sent for his glory. I, I turn back with me, if you will, in your Bible to Deuteronomy chapter 1. For those of you who know me, you know I love this book of the Bible. I won't say it's my favorite because I kind of love the one I'm studying at the moment, you know, but it's one of my favorite. And I'll tell you why. Because when we think about this idea of mission, Deuteronomy is a book that captures the mission of God's people as they follow the Lord. And it demonstrates to us how the Lord is committed not only to his people, but to his mission. And as we look at Deuteronomy chapter 1, when you come to this book, here's the first thing you have to remember this wasn't the first time that these people had heard what they're about to hear. They were standing on the banks of the Jordan River for the second time. For 40 years before, some of them weren't there then, but they knew about it from their parents and their grandparents and their great-grandparents who had told them about what had taken place. And they knew that as they stood on the banks of the Jordan River and they looked across the river to the land that was before them, they would behold the blessings and the unimaginable richness of God's love for them. And so here they stand with just a small body of water between where they were and where God was leading them. But like I said, it wasn't the first time 
that they had been there. Go with me to verse 1 of chapter 1 in Deuteronomy. It tells us this. These are the words that Moses spoke to all Israel beyond the Jordan in the wilderness in the Arabah opposite Suf, between Paran and Tophel, Laban, Hazaroth, and Dizahab. I'm telling you, you got to choose your verses wisely when you preach from the Old Testament. Or this happens and you're going, man, I hope I get these right. Verse 2 and verse 3 are striking though. Look at verse 2. It is 11 days journey from Horeb by the way of Mount Seir to Kadesh Barnea. How many days journey? 11. Verse 3. In the 40th year. How does an 11 day journey turn into 40 years? I've driven behind some people like that. (laughs) On the first day of the 11th month, Moses spoke to the people of Israel according to all that the Lord had given him in commandment to them. Verse 8, see, I have set the land before you. Go in and take possession of the land that the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give to them and to their offspring after them. Now, what Moses does is he reminds them of where they are and that they've been here before or their people have been here before. And then he rewinds 40 years and he begins to walk them through what took place to bring them to this point and what happened the first time they got to this point. First of all, he said, you went into captivity, a small, minuscule people. You came out so numerous that you were uncountable and it was difficult for anyone to lead you. So we had to multiply leadership in order just to organize our forces. They tell us that the Israelites at this time were 2 million plus in number. That's a crowd to preach to with, without an AV system. You know what I'm saying? You got to yell. And they're like, no, he's not mad. He's just trying to make sure everybody hears him. But when they got to the land, here's what Moses said. Skip down to verse 21 of chapter 1. See, the Lord your God has set the land before you. Go up, take possession as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has told you. Do not fear or be dismayed. Seems pretty simple, right? It's right there. Just go get it. All you got to do is be willing to put your toe in the water. And when you come out on the other side, you got it. It's right there. Don't be afraid. Just go get it. And somebody said, well, maybe we ought to send somebody in to look at it first. Make sure, you know, it's ready for us. So Moses said, well, that seemed like a good idea to me. So he chose 12 people to represent each of the tribes, one from each tribe, and he sent in 12 spies. Well, we know what took place. It tells us that 12 men from among you, and then verse 24, they spied it out, and they took in their hands some of the fruit of the land and brought it down to us, and brought us word again and said, it is a good land that the Lord our God is giving us. Now, you can only hear what's taking place. Number one, the smacking. 
right, from eating the fruit of the land that's just been returned to them. Is it good? Oh, yeah. I mean, they're, and they almost choke on the grape when they begin to tell the other people how good the land really is. And so what's left to do here, right? Cross the river and go take what God has given to you. And what's the first word of the next verse? Yet. You feel the turn? They, they're supposed to be going this way. And the verse says, yet, right? The spies came back. What happened? As they're eating the fruit of the land that demonstrated with its sweetness, but a small aspect of the real glory of what God had promised them, 10 of the 12 spies said, man, you're not going to believe how big those people are over there. I mean, they're huge. Make us look like grasshoppers. And somebody went, grasshoppers? That doesn't sound good. And all of a sudden, it tells us that the murmuring began. But you rebelled against the command, verse 26, of the Lord your God. Verse 27, and you murmured in your tents and you said, probably while you were still eating what they had brought back from the land, because the Lord hated us, he has brought us out of the land of Egypt. I find this so ironic and yet so familiar. <laughs> to my own life in many ways. Because while you enjoy the bounty and the blessing of God's provision and protection, you can dare to believe that he only did it just to destroy you. But that's what's taking place here. The people chose to listen to the negative chatter and it filled them with fear. But then Moses pushed back and he said, you know, that the Lord your God who goes before you will himself fight for you just as he did for you in Egypt before your eyes. And in the last 40 years in the wilderness, it's not like God hasn't done anything for you. I mean, water came out of a rock, bread fell from heaven. You've not missed a meal. You've not missed a drink. Your clothes didn't wear out in 40 years. You don't buy those kind of clothes today, do you? Why? Because the hand of our God took care of you. But you chose rather to let your brothers who came back with negative chatter mutter and make your heart melt. That's what it says up in verse 28. In spite of this word that God gave to you, you did not believe the Lord your God. And what took place was a lot of confusion and chaos over 40 years that created a lot of challenges that the people were constantly confronted with. And really that challenge only led to one issue every time. Will you trust or will you rebel? And that 40-year history of the Israelites, really the whole of their history, is culminated in this. Will you trust the Lord and what he says to believe that he can do what he's promised he would do? Or will you rebel and try to find and make your own way? And here we have this. And, and so as he finishes chapter 1 and moves into chapter 2, it just begins to remind the people of how faithful God was and how rebellious they continued to be. Sin's rebellion led them to these 40 years of wandering. Sin's rebellion led them into this cycle of habitual sin that led them further and further and further away from God. But friends, when we come into the second part of chapter 2 and into chapter 3, which is where I'll end today, here's what we find. God remains faithful at all times. God remains faithful. Can you imagine 
that God would take 40 years of rebellious, sinful wandering of his people and turn it into one glorious display of this testimony. God is faithful. That's what the first three chapters of Deuteronomy tell us. And as Moses leads the people of Israel to the edge of the Jordan River to look and behold and to follow the Lord by faith in what he's calling them to do, that's what he reminds them of. He tells them not to get distracted and let their hearts melt with the fear and unbelief that have ruled them, but to remember God's faithfulness and the way that he has led them. Really, they had to address one question. Would their wandering in the wilderness, would it prove to be pointless or purposeful for their life? You see, friends, that's what sin does to all of us is that God takes a life that is imperfect in every way and sinful, broken, incomplete. But when he loves us and when we trust in his love so that he saves us, he redeems us, and he brings what was pointless before to divine, supreme, glorious purpose. Not only for him, but for each of us who follow him. You see, fear and unbelief, they often cloak themselves as genuine concern, right? They, they often cloak themselves as calculated wisdom, but what happens is they get channeled in inappropriate ways so that they can avoid being confronted or exposed for what they really are. But what happens is the fire of rebellion against God is always ignited by the murmur of speculation and by the grumble of fear that's sparked when doubt and unbelief get spoken. And I mean, it just takes the smallest spark. It could have been in one tent the first night among the people when they said, man, did you hear how they talked about, we look like grasshoppers in their sight. And all of a sudden a wildfire broke out of murmuring that melted the hearts because of fear and unbelief. That's what fear and unbelief do. It always robs us of faith and leads us to rebellion and to disobedience. But God's resounding testimony because of his full devotion is this. I am faithful. I am faithful. What happens when we have such an event in our life that it becomes a marker by which we remember or by which we uh, mark our life by? What do we say? Always remember. Never forget. We celebrated one of those this last week, didn't we? I don't have to tell anybody in this room what 9-11 means. Because even those of you who weren't here when it happened yet, you've heard. And, and you've heard the kind of chaos and confusion that broke out at that event. Such that when you see those three numbers together, at the very least you're reminded of the marker where you were, what you were doing when that event took place. And we've captured that moment in this way. Always remember, never forget. And you know what, friends? That's right. We should do that. And we shouldn't do that less with the things that God has done for us because what God tells us is simply this. Always remember, never forget. 
Remember how I have loved you with a full devotion. Remember how I have been faithful, not just to you, my people, but to my purposes. And when we trust the Lord in the many ways that he has proven himself faithful over and over and over again, it's not like we don't have proof, right? We know this that we can remember and never forget the faithfulness of God. Friends, I want you to see that God loves with a full devotion. To rescue and to redeem people from unbelief's rebellion and to empower us for missional advancement to accomplish his kingdom purposes. God rescues from rebellion when we repent and and he redeems us through that for his kingdom mission. And friends, sometimes he calls us from faithfulness in serving his kingdom mission to greater faithfulness. Let me tell you another story of full devotion, kind of like the Israelites, but one that's a little more recent. In the fall of 2003, my wife Kristen and I were, we were in a very good place in life. We were living with a a solid job that was very rewarding. It's it's right where we had worked towards for many years in our life together. Uh, We had two children, one and and four years old, I believe, were their ages. And life was good. We had a great house and and we had good friends. And I mean, everything was going right except for one problem, one problem. We had this heavy load of burden on us that would not relent. You see, a few years before, about nine years actually when I was still in seminary, the Lord in that first week of the first semester of my seminary days, the Lord exposed me to this thing called church planting. And the first time I heard it, it was like a zinger, man. I was like, whoa, I am awake. I am tuned in to what you're saying. And our professor began to tell about how the, the gospel went forth and new churches got started. I mean, I just grew up in the church. I just thought churches were. And then they are. And then they mess up and stuff happens and they still are. I've never heard of churches being planted And so I came home and I told Kristen, I said, Kristen, I heard about this thing called church planting today and it's going to be so fun. She said, wow, that sounds wonderful. I mean, anything sounds wonderful when you're in seminary. Just get out of cemetery and you'll be fine. And she said, where? And I went, well, he talked about being in Alaska today. And her face just dropped. She said, your parents and my parents are never going to go for that. Well, there's a lot of things I've done that my parents wouldn't go for. Sounds like we need to get them ready. For nine years, through a couple of job changes, even coming out of seminary, I knocked on doors and I talked to people about planting churches. Can you help me? I got assessed. I got evaluated. I got counseled. And every time, people pat me on the back and go, good luck. I don't need luck. I need help. I didn't know what to do. And and I always thought, okay, God's shutting that door. God's closing that opportunity. I don't need to walk in that way. And so fast forward to where I was working at that time and the job I was in, I'd put all of that away. I just thought it's just something Lane was excited about. It wasn't God's plan for my life. But this burden would not relent. And it was creating these conversations between us that, that finally I remember one day Kristen said, you know what, you're either going to have to make a change or you're going to have to get okay because we're not going to live like this forever. 
And there was a really deep sense of burden and we were in this season of prayer that we were trying to go, God, would you just give us a defining moment? Something, tell us what we're supposed to do. We'll do whatever. And I was praying, it was early one morning, I was going to work. I think Kristen wanted me to go to work earlier and earlier every day just to get out of the house. You know, the house was more peaceful at that time without me in it. And I can tell you exactly where I was on a road in Ozark driving to work that morning when I just culminated all of these fears because I was excited about church planting until the moment I knew I was supposed to do it. And the moment that I realized I was supposed to do it, fears and unbelief just welled up like a monster in me. And it just began to come at me internally. And I was fighting God. And listen, friends, if there's one thing I've learned to do, develop excuses to offer to God, I've perfected that in my life. And as I drove on to work on this, this morning, I said, God, you know, I've, I recounted all the things that he had given to me. I was kind of holding them against him, if, if I'm honest. And I said, you know, I've got a good family. I've got young children, and they tell me they're hungry all the time, and I've got to feed their faces, and I've got a wife I've got to take care of. If I go plant a church and quit my job, how in the world am I going to take care of my family? That quick, friends, that quick. God immediately took me back 20 years to a breakfast table where I was sitting with my parents as a 16-year-old sophomore in high school. My brother and sister had gone to college already, and I like to call them Lane's Glory Days. The house was mine. All of this was mine. That's kind of how I thought about it. I didn't think about anything that wasn't about Lane at that time. As we sat at the breakfast table that morning, my father said, Lane, Sunday I'm going to stand up. It was a Thursday morning, so I only had three days. He said, Sunday I'm going to stand up and resign my position as pastor at Parkview. Now, I need to tell you about Parkview. Parkview was a church that I'd been in for 13 years. I was 16. We went there when I was three. Not only did churches just always exist, I thought that church was the one that had always existed. It's all I ever knew. And I was a little, you know, befuddled and, and I was just kind of, okay, whatever. I mean, you know, I'm 16. It didn't immediately have to do with me. And quite honestly, I didn't think very long about anything. It didn't have to do with me at 16. But I remember walking away from the table that morning thinking this, that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. How in the world does that man plan to finance my social life? <laughs> Except I said it this way. How's he going to provide for his family? You see, the lesson that God taught me as a 16-year-old punk sophomore in high school, that quite honestly, I don't know if I had ever thought of it from the time I was 16 until the moment I was driving down that road. God, in an instant, brought that back to my mind. It's as fresh as me today as it has ever been in my life. And he said, Lane, who do you think takes care of your family right now? Well, God, if you want to get into theology, I'll pass. Message received. From that moment on, there was never a hesitation about what direction we were headed. It would be quite some time later before the wheels would begin to turn to put in motion. But friends, the questions 
that I posed to God on that morning to try and subvert or thwart what I knew he was telling me to do were the same questions he had answered at a critical moment of my life 20 years before. God reminded me of his love. He reminded me of his full devotion. You know, I never missed a meal in high school. You can probably tell that now. There isn't anything that I can recall that I ever went without because of what he led us through when I was in school. And I can tell you today, over the last 13 years now, almost 14 from when it first began, there's not been a thing that we've had to do without because of God's full devotion. God loves and God leads us with a full devotion, friends. He ransoms and rescues. He, he reconciles and he restores us in redeeming us to serve his kingdom mission. God loves with a full devotion that compels us to live sent for his glory. But the founding of this church isn't just about me or my family. It's about a number of people that God was bringing together. I want to introduce another family to you this morning. Their names are Al and Kelly Webb, and uh, they really don't need an introduction to our church. Al is an elder at our church. Kelly has held every other position in the church, I'm pretty sure, at some time or the other. And Kelly's leadership follows this pattern. You give me a job to do, and I'll find somebody else to do it. That's called discipleship, friends. That's the way that things should take place. I've asked them to come and to share a little bit about their story of how God brought them to Life Point, some of the challenges that they encountered along the way, and then ultimately in the last 13 years as we've followed the Lord together, what do you believe about what God's leading us in right now? I think our uh, journey to Life Point actually goes back about 19 years or so. Uh, Kelly and I were newly married and uh, lived in Oklahoma City. And um, we were very focused at that time as uh, a new couple on uh, seeking the Lord's will and trying to uh, understand where he's leading us as a couple and our future family. And um, kind of out of the clear blue, uh, we got an invitation from a former boss of mine to uh, join him in St. Louis and uh, work for him, a real attractive offer, uh, but it was in St. Louis. And we were born and raised in Oklahoma City area. That's all we ever really knew. We loved it. We loved our church, our friends, um, all of our family was there. And just the thought of moving, it might as well have been Alaska or <laughs> to the Mideast or somewhere. It just seemed like a long distance. It's interesting over the years, our world has gotten a lot smaller. It's not as far away as it felt at that time. But um, anyway, we really um, sought the Lord in prayer. Uh, we uh, sought him in our quiet times. Um, it's interesting, both of us, I think we were kind of on the same reading program, but both of us in our separate quiet times uh, had read in Genesis uh, about how the Lord had called Abram and his family uh, out of, of his land, away from his family, to a land that didn't even name, didn't even know where he was going. And, and um, then another uh, passage we were reading in Ecclesiastes about how there's, you know, the seasons of life and there's 
uh, a time for, for those different seasons. And, and um, you know, I, I kept thinking, is that really, you know, God trying to impress upon me about this move? But it really was confirmed when Kelly and I got, uh, got together and talked about our quiet times, and we both got the same message from there. And, of course, then we were scared about that, so we went and got spiritual counsel, and they confirmed what uh, we knew uh, too. So uh, we laid our fear at the Lord's feet and moved to uh, St. Louis, and that was just a, a huge step for us. I'll let Kelly tell about after that. So we visited several churches in St. Louis trying to find our home, and we ended up going to a church that was um, a church plant. And they were meeting in a high school, and um, they were living out of Rubbermaid containers. So they would come into the high school, unpack, and then at the end of the church service, they would pack up and load their stuff back up. So we were a part of that, which we loved. Um, one thing that they had that we had never had um, been introduced to was community groups. And that really helped us to um, develop relationships um, because we knew nobody in St. Louis and um, really found uh, deep relationships there that helped us grow in the Lord and just um, develop friendships. But then Al's organization, or company reorganized and they asked him to um, relocate to Springfield. And we were going, what? No. <laughs> so um, we began praying about that again and, and seeking God's will in that area and, and uh, receiving spiritual counsel. And then we found out that Springfield has Brahms and Hobby Lobby. And we felt like that that was a confirmation. <laughs> Not really, but kind of. <laughs> we were still a little homesick. Yeah, they're Oklahoma-based companies. But so we moved back, we moved here to Ozark, and uh, we really thought that we would probably uh, join a church here in Ozark, um, but the Lord had different plans for us, and we joined a church at Second Baptist, not knowing it. We had a few acquaintances, one couple <laughs> that we knew, and um, got involved there. And then one Sunday morning, they announced that they were going to have an informational meeting about a possible church plant in Ozark. So that piqued our ears. We thought, oh, we'll go to that. And um, we didn't know anybody. It was a, another group of people that we didn't know. We didn't know this young gentleman that's called Lane Harrison, the singles minister. He wasn't in our group of acquaintances, so um, we didn't even know who he looked like. There were, or what he looked like. There were several bald people in second, so. <laughs> um, Thanks. So Thanks. anyway, we uh, went to this meeting and started praying again about that, moving our family to a church. Um, and quite frankly, it was really an easy decision. I think that from our, what the Lord had brought us through from Oklahoma City to St. Louis to here, that it was just a building to part of his plan. And I think that we really felt comfortable, even though that we didn't know this group of people, 
Um, but we fell in love with it. And I think some of the challenges that we had to think about was that we were walking into a church that a church plant that had nothing. Of course, they had a vision and they had a plan, um, but there was nothing, you know, established. There wasn't a building. There wasn't a children's, you know, area. They didn't even have Rubbermaid containers. They didn't have Rubbermaid containers. <laughs> they didn't. <laughs> so um, the challenging was that we were going to really have to step up our commitment and our... Um, uh, we had to focus on, you know, our time and our uh, our commitment to it because we were it. And um, I think that that was probably the most fear and challenging, but we're thankful we did. Hmm. Uh, as far as uh, looking toward the future for LifePoint, um, I think like you were talking about earlier, we we all need to look back and we need to see where the Lord has worked in our lives, where he's been faithful. Um, we need to do that as individuals, but we need to do that as a church, as the body of Christ. See where we've been and where he's led us. Uh, we do need to uh, humble ourselves before the Lord uh, in prayer, be in his scripture. We need to look forward. Um, basically, we need to keep doing what we're doing and not be afraid uh, of the Lord's bounty. Um, I think when you look at the scriptures on the wall, uh, it talks about how the love of Christ compels us. That's how we got here, is the love of Christ has uh, compelled us to uh, become a local body of Christ. And um, it also talks about uh, how we might uh, put ourselves aside and, and put him before us. And, and that's just my prayer uh, for us uh, as a church, that we'll look forward, that we'll not give in to any uh, fear that we'll just trust uh, that the Lord's in, in control and he's leading and guiding and seek to hear that voice uh, very clearly as uh, individuals and as a body. Thanks, Al. Thanks, Kelly. I first met uh, Kelly. I didn't know Alan Kelly, and we were at the park with our kids, and she was at the park with her two young boys at the time, I think maybe one or two and six months old, and Kristen said, hey, that's one of the ladies who's interested in our vision meeting. And I said, at this point, I need to figure out who that is because uh, we had no one. And so that's uh, the first time that I met uh, Kelly. I introduced them to you today, and I want you to hear their story because you're going to hear a number of stories over the next several weeks from different people at LifePoint and the way that God has worked in our congregation to bring us where we are today. If you just walked in for the first time today or if you've recently begun to attend LifePoint, you may be tempted to think, well, this church has just always been here, always going to be here, ups and downs, good and bad, and that's the way it is. But that's, that's not true because what's true is we're not quite 13 years old yet. Yet. So we're kind of coming into our teenage years, growing up some ways. But the way that God has led us as a church has been very distinctive and, and I'll say even unique to us. And, and what God is doing right now in the season of church life that we're in is very important for us as a church. And so we're going to talk about that so we can talk about the future. And I want you to hear across the congregation what's taking place 
Let me just dial in some thoughts from this morning to help us uh, as we conclude this time. As we've been loved by God's full devotion, we are compelled by that love to live in such a way that is a right response to his love. And what I offer to you as a right response is just simply the, the acrostic scent. S-E-N-T. And let me tell you what that means. I'm going to introduce this because this is the, the trajectory that the campaign is going to follow for the next several weeks. But the first response to God's love for us is that we surrender. We surrender. You know, when the Israelites stood on the edge of the Jordan River, they really had to make a choice. It wasn't the only time they had to make this choice. And it's not the only time you'll ever have to make this choice in your life. As a matter of fact, Joshua, who would take over leadership at that time of the Israelites, at the end of his reign in leadership, he told the people, Choose ye this day whom you will serve, whether it be the gods of this world or the God who is the creator of this world. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord, he said. Why do you do that? You do that because you surrender to the things of God. You look at what God has done. You hear what God is saying, and you stand at the line where you must make a decision. Will you surrender to what God is calling you to do? That doesn't mean you ignore fears and unbelief. It does mean you deal with them. And in looking at all he's done, you choose to surrender to his will to follow him. That's our first right response. Our second right response is that we expend our lives I'll talk more about this in detail, but when I say we expend our whole life, here's what I mean. That Christianity and following the Lord is not a compartment of your life. Too often that's the way we've contextualized our faith in this world. That, that, that following Jesus is just, that's about what I do here. When I'm with these people, when I'm on this day or at this place, following Jesus is what I do there. But what God calls us to do is to expend our whole life for his glory. When we follow Jesus, there's not a moment of your life, there's not any aspect or area of your life that doesn't come under his complete lordship. And expending your life simply means this, that you embrace the person that God has created you to be. You embrace the place where he has put you to maximize in your sphere of influence for the gospel of Jesus Christ to bring honor and glory to him. I don't know who you are or where you're at, but you're not in some holding pattern until God can use you. He wants to use you where you are. And what we're going to talk about over the next several weeks is how it is that God wants to work in your life to use you where he or where he's put you and the person that he's created you to be to maximize his glory through your life. The third right action is when God loves we can invest our life in the same way that we expend our life wherever we wherever we go and whomever we're with God also wants us to invest our life in the church that he's brought us to be a part of. You see, God wants to grow life point church by growing life point each person. But God's going to grow life point each person by also growing life point church. 
And as each person invests, that's what 1 Corinthians 12 talks about, that we are the body of Christ and each of us are members of it. He's talking about that relationship, that as you invest your life with your strengths and abilities and skills and giftings that God's given you, he does so to strengthen the whole body. That's what Ephesians 4 tells us, is that the leaders are given to equip the body so that the body might serve one another out of their giftings and their purposes personhood until every person is mature in Christ's likeness. And then the fourth right response is simply this, that we learn to treasure the transformation that God is working. You see, we didn't, we're not putting a plan forward that we say, hey, everybody get on board. This is a great plan. God's going to bless us and love it. But what we've done until this point is we've asked God over a 14-year history, literally, Long before the church launched, we've said, God, what do you want us to do? And as God's laid those plans forth, we've tried our best to follow by faith what he's doing. And what we've come to cherish most, to treasure most as a church, is what God does by his power and by his work. You're going to hear some of those stories, friends. I could fill hours with them. I'll not. But you are going to hear some of them, of the way that God has brought about his will for this church and where we believe he is leading, that he might continue to use us as a witness of faithful gospel presence in our city to the ends of the earth.